So what can be revealed by taking a quick look at stated preferences, something surveyed, of course, versus revealed preferences and how that affects the transportation logistics world? Let's dive a little bit into that today for a few minutes. My name is Chris Joslin, and welcome to Joss Bites. Hey everybody, Chris Joslin again for another edition of Jaws Bites. Welcome aboard. As always, I'd like to welcome you in as part of the community trying to mainstream supply chain logistics transportation world and to bet to the benefit of those involved in the industry already and to the benefit of those that are wanting to become involved in the industry. Uh, more and more, we can see through things that are happening in life how important supply chain is, how imbalances and imperfections in that supply chain and these days, severe imperfections can cause havoc, can cause chaos. And our job as transportation professionals, uh, 3PL supply chain logistics professionals, is to supply answers to those challenges. So we attempt in this series of podcasts, in this series of videos, to explain some things that can get pretty granular in broad terms to see how that it can affect you as an individual business owner, perhaps you as a person that's sitting in a cubicle for a large company, you that is looking to join a logistics program at a university or take online classes or simply take YouTube education the way it is designed today to learn more about something that you're interested in, something that you could create a career out of and something that you could impact in your future and the future of those around you. So again, welcome aboard. We are sponsored as always by iLevelLogistics.com coming across your screen, hopefully at this moment. And as I said below and on the videos, uh, join us at YouTube, be a subscriber, click the button to the lower, to the lower right on the screen. You'll see an iLevel Logistics insignia emblem there that you can tap on and become a subscriber that you can jump on ilevelogistics.com and get a daily sent to you with aggregated and curated information that will uh that you can take bits and pieces from not spend a whole lot of time during your day but just get a feel for what's happening in your industry or focus in on things that are key to what you do for the supply chain industry as a whole so today what i'd like to talk to about for a few minutes is I, I saw a couple surveys recently that brought some things to mind, partly from some previous podcasts. Uh, we talked a lot about the rejuvenation, the great rejuvenation, the great reshuffle, the great recalibration, as I like to call it overall, because I think recalibration implies subtle shifts in the way we think subtle transitions in our overall methodology for going about our business lives that we need to look at. And there was a, there was a survey that came out um, not too long ago. It was part of the 30th annual study of logistics and transportation trends that, that we're talking about as what is very important to us today, factors that are very critical when deciding how you want your work environment to be. This is a great survey for those that own the environment and are trying to look at what's happened through this pandemic and some of the technological changes that are happening and create a better workspace that fulfills the needs of their employees, but also transfers that to practical application of 
the type of business you do with the clients that are looking for those services that you offer. And that survey, it broke it down, and, and I'm going to have that come across the screen right now. And you can see right here that at the top of the heap is what everybody would expect. Pay is very, very important. Now, they only show that as 12.6% of what people lined up this survey for. But I want you to take a look real close because 12.6% is pay, but benefits is another 10%, 10.1%. So 22.7% right there in itself has to do with some kind of compensation. And you can actually add to that in a way, a, a more soft cost or soft pay way is the idea of being able to uh, move up the corporate ladder career opportunities and development. Because kind of intrinsic in talking about that would be the idea of additional pay. That's another 11.6%. So what is that? We're up to 22.7, 30, 33, 30, like 34%. So a full third of all those surveys said that something along the lines of compensation was the most important part about what this workplace environment was critical to the workplace environment. And these are employees that were surveyed for the most part on this. Now, you can see also, very interestingly, on this 30th annual survey, that remote work options were kind of low on that, that table, that board. You know, 5.1% basically said, hey, we, we want to be able to, to remotely work, have some portion of our work performed off-site. And other anecdotal uh, references in media today look at that as that's some kind of primary thing. And that is that five that, that that percentage of people wanting to work remote is dictated by kind of the, the work life balance scenario, which is on this as well at 8.6%. There's a work life balance. So, some of those people, some of that 5%, I would imagine all of that 5% see themselves trying to have more balance between their work and outside of work life. Uh, so, so it's, it's very interesting to take a look at this and appreciate what is what's determining here. I, I find one thing very, very interesting, and you can you can stare at this for quite some time and kind of make your own measurements and determinations of how this affects you and how you feel about the workplace and the environment, the corporate culture, whether you have a good leader in place, whether you're, there's a mentorship program, there's all these kind of things that are available. But at the very bottom of the list was the company and industry size and prestige. Seems to have very little to do with whether or not someone wants to belong to that company or not. Very interesting component to this. And it, it lends itself to a belief that I have that small business is as important or even more important than large businesses within the context of most industries. Most industry, you know, the old 80-20 rule, 80-20 rule, 80%, you can use this for almost anything, but 80% of the overall uh, size and scope of an industry is dominated by about 20% of the companies involved in that industry. And the interesting part of that to me, though, is that that other 80% of businesses that fill out that 20% that they're talking about differential there actually apply their wares, apply their expertise, apply their in products and services, et cetera. They supply it to the large companies. So there's a there's a insinuated collaborative effort going on, even if it's not constantly at a a conscious level within the industry itself, it's all tied together and creates the overall environment that we work with today and the clients look to to support them through their supply chain.
But the reason that I brought this up and it's very interesting to me is because surveys in general are all about a couple of different things. They're about how you ask a question, you know, in, in, in opposition to who you're asking, of course. But it's also about trying to, to inevitably forecast the decisions that will actually come to light. So it's one thing to ask a question. It's one thing to get a survey answered and priorities met and, you know, will you vote for this person or will you do X, Y, and Z or will you buy this product? But that is a stated preference. And there is a whole theory and philosophy and uh, everything from economics to, uh, you know, mechanisms around mathematics that, that look at stated preference combinations and what is oftentimes referred to as contingent valuation, CV, CV, um, or even choice experiments. You know, the, the difference between those two is, so when you have a state of preference, oftentimes a survey is asked and says, will you buy this, yes or no? Very simple. Will you, will you um, vote for this person, yes or no? Will you take this vaccination, yes or no? Those kind of things are, are very contingent valuation. There's something underneath that, though. And to reveal what might be underneath that is how an individual person or a group or whoever you're surveying along these lines to get a stated preference, how they evaluate components of their decision making, how they value pieces of that puzzle. So in the transportation world, that, that might be um, uh, the whole series of different things involved with your service that you're offering, whether it's a niche service or whether it's something that's more commoditized, like we talked about uh, last week in, in the, in the, uh, in the podcast. So the willingness to pay, uh, WTP in the, in the literature, willingness to pay is determined by how something is valued by whoever is being asked to pay for it. And trying to determine what actually happens usually starts with a stated preference. Um, and in this little uh, air, it's a little diagram here. You can see that these surveys, these evaluations, these these broadcasts are looking for the stated preferences, so that they so that you can look at large numbers and aggregates of information across a big spread of populations, uh, split up in a number of different ways to determine if there is a utility function important to them about what they are willing to pay for. WTP. To, to help us determine what their real choices, what their real plans of action might be, those choices. So preferences, the utility function, the choices. Now, the second side of that, though, is going in the opposite direction, as you can see from this diagram. Starting with choices and working backward to utility function and then to preferences. And what, and what this diagram describes is really the revealed preference theory. The meaning that you start kind of with the end in mind, as we've talked about in previous podcasts as well. You start with the choices that actually functionally happen and work backward from there to see what the revealed preferences are, to try to forecast in the future, not just based on what people say, but what they do. So not based on people's, what they say they are willing to purchase, but what they actually do. So in there are different, so you can see you work back. The choices that actually happened to determine what was those important functions, utilities, services, whatever was important, whatever was valued, to bring it back to where the actual preference would be. So as an example, just to give you a real simplistic example, someone might say that they, you know, 
listen to only 80s rock and roll right on the radio. And they, they, they adamantly state their preference of, you know, listening to old 80s rock. And yet one day you pull up beside them in the car and they're singing to and blasting on the radio Katy Perry songs, right? So you can tell right away that their stated preference is something that is not actually the same as their revealed preference. They've shown you by what they've actually listened to you that they have a preference to listen to. Maybe it's an odd uh, way of saying, but you've observed their true behavior, which is always more meaningful than what somebody says. You know, there's there's always the the uh, look at what somebody does versus look at somebody what, what somebody says. I wish we would do that more in today's society because we hear sound bites of everything over the course of every single day that tells us somebody's on our side with this or the other side with that or trying to do something for us or trying to do something for this cause or whatever. And then they turn around and do something in their lives completely opposite to that. And I could use some examples, but I won't because we're supposed to be pretty balanced on this, this, this video cast. So I'll leave that alone. But a more typical example in economics would be to involve a resource that, you know, provides some utility, you know, some value of some kind. You know, a homeowner might say that they, they place a very high value on having like mature trees planted on their property um, to, to make the whole property look better and value higher, et cetera, et cetera. And that's their stated preference. But when it comes down to looking at the price of tearing out their old, you know, half dead tree and replacing it with a brand new one of, of a mature level, they don't do it because their stated preference is not as valued high as their actual method of conducting whatever that Yes. And transportation, a good example would be uh, maybe a client asking a 3PL or transportation provider to supply a guaranteed package, uh, a guaranteed equipment package as part of maybe an agreement. That's the stated preference, right? They said, I, I'll do business with you. you got to guarantee me equipment, blah, 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 blah. And then when the 3PL or transportation provider says, oh, yeah, I, I can definitely do that, but it's going to cost a premium of 10%, let's say. And then what ends up happening is that customer looks at that and says, well, I'm going to go with a lesser cost arrangement because the revealed preference says that the price differential, the price of paying less for just getting, uh, taking a look at daily equipment supply and determining whether to order that supply or not, it's easier for them because of the cost differential than to pay a guaranteed equipment package program in the agreement. So that's, that's kind of, now the first example, the, the, you know, eighties music one that I was talking about kind of lends itself to the belief that the subject is being deliberately misleading. He didn't want, he or she didn't want anybody to know that they're going down the street listening to Katy Perry when they, when they would have been listening to, you know, foreigner or whatever the case may be. It just came off the top of my head. You can tell where my preference is. It's not Katy Perry. But uh, um, the, the, the fact is, is that that's not necessarily true. A, a lot of people might be doing something a little bit like that to cast themselves in a little better positive light from who they believe is asking them the questions. So that's more a part of how they want to be seen as individuals or companies or something. 
companies in transportation logistics all the time say they have a series of KPIs, key performance indicators that need to be met by their service providers. And that they, they, they look at price point, for instance, quotation as a, as a certainly one of the key performance indicators, one of the key indicators that allow them to make decisions on who they will use as a provider. But they often claim that that's fourth or fifth down the row and that maybe the number one thing that they're looking to do is, is have somebody with, you know, a, a robust communication program or a forecasting program, or as I said earlier in this, this representative example, an equipment program that, that guarantees a certain level of service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there can be a lot of different things. But they may be putting those key P, KPIs in writing. But when the final decisions are made, when they've outsourced the RFP program and they've come back with a result, it's very clear that the weighted average of the quotations is far more important to them. And typically these days, based on the fact that most transportation logistics in certain segments, certain modes of transportation is more and more commoditized, as we talked about last week, these are the decisions that are being made. A whole lot of things can be important to a company, but the decisions are being made with the idea of a commoditized price point being a very, very important or the key important element to making those decisions. The reality is, is that people often have very poor understanding of what they really value, what their true motivations are as individuals or as even companies. Uh, this is especially true when it comes to pricing because pricing has a lot of different things built into it. Not one, if, if so, if two, two companies have the exact same quotation for a customer, there are things underneath that quote that the customer may or may not need, may or may not want. So there's a, there's a whole series of things we could talk about in terms of looking at what the customer's you know, validated needs are versus stated needs. Very similar to what we're talking about here. So there's a stated need, stated preference for some type of service, and then there's the revealed preference the actual one, the ones that are truly needed. And there's there's a lot of different variables involved with that that uh, we won't get into today because this is more of a higher level co conversation about why we should be looking, the, the whole this whole podcast, this whole dialogue today is more about revealing the fact that we need to certainly listen to what people state they want from us or we want from them but we must give more credence and more focus and more validity to what is actually their action steps beyond that stated want, desire, or preference. And that's why I wanted to talk about this revealed preference today. But you know, this, this, this whole idea that oftentimes customers or people don't entirely know what truly makes, uh, motivates them very much rings true as far as pricing. And, you know, for example, many people will say that, uh, uh, there's something called charm pricing out there. If you don't know what that is, that's kind of the the uh, colloquial term for managing your quote to something, whether it's a retail environment or a wholesale environment, doesn't matter when you put, instead of using a whole number, like something's going to be $2,000, it's instead of that, it's uh, $1,999.99. That's charm pricing. And there's a lot of people that say that that's you know, nothing that they want to see because they round up in their heads to $2,000 anyway. But that's the truth is very different than that. The charm parse pricing is very effective. Uh, most people do find it compelling, usually rounding down to some extent in, in their uh, subconsciously in their mind, which pushes them to, to toward 
some affinity to that one penny or one dollar low pricing. That doesn't mean everybody needs to go out and do that because there are pragmatic um, reasons to not use charm pricing in terms of complexity for accounting, etc. because that, that does become an issue. But even though they truly believe that they're immune to the power of this charm pricing, it charms them. That's why they call it charm pricing. So, it, you know, but revealed preference theory. This was, this was originally pioneered more of an, in economics than anything else by uh, a gentleman named Paul Anthony Samuelson way back in 1938. So, you know, ni- almost 90 years ago, 80 something years ago. And he used that as a method to analyze the choices made by individuals, mostly comparing the influence of policies on consumer behavior. So there's always a need when creating a service or product to understand what the consumer needs. You don't want to build something that will never be purchased by a consumer because it's too expensive, even though it does whatever it's supposed to do way better than anything else, if that way better than anything else is not really needed. Right? Sometimes the simplest thing in the world, a, a mousetrap that's a few cents, is just as effective as you know a whole lot of other more sophisticated means of accomplishing the same task. Thus, it, it, there's a niche cons- consumption and there's a more broad consumption. And there are really four methods to determine cu- customer preference in general. One is by testing, preference testing. Consumers are given you know, two or more products and asked which they prefer. You know, that, that's what's, what happens. They say, do you prefer this A over B, B over A, C over D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are difference testing analysis, analysis, you know, of how well consumers can tell the difference between two products. The greatest example of that is taste testing, right? Uh, but also a great example in transportation logistics is how, how it, with your criteria as a customer, a KPI of, of reaching a distribution center, say from Los Angeles to Chicago in six days. How much of a difference to you does it matter to go intermodal with a quote unquote guaranteed service or going over the road? Is over the road just a preference because it seems safer or is rail a preference because it's less expensive? Even if they they hit the the distribution center at the exact same moment. So those are the different kind of tests that that occur. Acceptance testing is more of ascertaining how much a product, uh, how much of a product likes, um, is acceptable. So is there something about the service or product that you're trying to purchase or that someone is trying to purchase from you that is acceptable within the parameters of what they're trying to do? And then ranking tests. And this is, this is where I fall for the most part. My philosophy is almost always, there are always more than one choice available. And uh, the, so you need to be able to rank with some criteria back to what we talked about earlier with that CE, not, uh, not the, uh, um, not contingent valuation, but choice experiments where you break down the, the elements, if you will, your decision-making is based on ranking things at different levels. So if you have multiple equipment providers and you have them ranked in certain order, there are elements to that ranking that come into play when you decide to tender that provider um, a dispatch. Some of those are based on price. Some of them are based on communication. Some of them are based on the uh, availability of that equipment in surplus or deficit areas. Some are based on the the uh, claims uh, history that a client like that or a customer like, excuse me, a vendor like that has. 
There's a whole myriad of things that can go into ranking maps. And, but reveal preference theory suggests that you can determine what the customer's preferences are in this backward scenario we talked about earlier, starting from the actual choice that was made an action step that was taken, purchase to move it backward in time to see what the preference of that element or that company was and how it might determine the similarity in an industry for uh, making that same decision and thus narrowing the choices and making it easier to determine what people do. These, this is by observing. Observation under a range of circumstances, particularly under different prices and incomes. What we want is revealed by what we do rather than what we say. Actions speak louder than words as the saying goes, right? Uh, when making purchase, as consumers, we have to consider a set of alternatives beforehand, and that reveals preferences. That's what the goal is. And now, the revealed preference theory comes down to three basic axioms. Weak, strong, and generalized, right? So uh, the, the acronyms they use are WARP, uh, SARP, and GARP. So... Uh, you know, it's to me, this is kind of, if, if anybody knows the reference, maybe you can look up the movie someday, but it, this is kind of the world according to GARP from my perspective. Now, the, the weak axiom of, of revealed preference when working from the choice that was made backward, basically on this, this quick uh, diagram shows A and B as particular sets of two products. So in a combination of products where you have X, X2, X1 and X2 on those lines, right? X on the X, X factor, X1 on the, the uh, horizontal and X2 on the, the vertical. And the price point is arranged in such a way where the, the price of X2 is slightly less than the price of X1. And the combination of these products is A and B. And weak axiom of real preference basically says that the that line, that green line that you see here is your constrictive budget. So it's your, it's your budget, your line. It's the line in which you spend everything available for you on that set of products or that set of services. So A basically is on that green line. It fulfills using the maximum available money for the maximum mix of that product or service on that line. B is below that. B means you're not getting what you wanted for that price point. A is the reveal preference over B. Now, now if you move those variables or if you look to so the weak axiom of reveal preference or it's basically saying that on these kind of sets of parameters, it's, it's throwing out a lot of the variability because variability changes these curves too much. You have to apply that later. This is saying that the consumer makes a different choice if the commodity provides more benefits in terms of affordability or better quality. Otherwise, they will always make the same choice based on the, the chart that you see here, if there's a budgetary constraint, it's always going to make the choice of A over B. Does that make sense? So the second one, strong axiom of revealed preference, SART. The SARP applies the concept of transit avidity to reveal the preferences. This implies that if the consumer chooses, and this is the chart that's on here, it implies that the consumer chooses A over commodity B and B over commodity C then the consumer preference will the consumer will prefer the commodity A to commodity C. Now what they've done with this is they've changed the price of X2 and X1 so that you had actually two C and B land on the same 
line that we talked about. That's that same budgetary line. So if the if C and B are your two preferred choices over A on that line, then you would take which one? B over C. That's that's what they're saying. Because A was considered better than C, now B is considered better than C, and A is considered better than C. Now, the generalized axiom of revealed preference, GARP, states that more than one combination of two commodities provides the same level of satisfaction of the customer at a given market price and income level. As per GARP, there is no unique combination of two commodities that provides a maximum utility to the customer. So if you have these different services, there's no combination of the two that provides some maximum. So you'll end up using this generalized axiom to reveal the preference at the same as what we talked about on the strong and the weak up above. Now there's a lot of criticism around the assumptions of revealed preference because the underlying circumstances of a chart like this is kind of assuming that the preferences do not change over time. Time is, is not the determinant though. Preferences can certainly change over time, but only if the criteria for which the preferences is determined changes. In other words, if the criteria change, the underlying, here's a great example. If, if suddenly, no matter if you're on this, on one of these green lines or blue lines or not, if suddenly the preference of A, B, or C does not have the availability to perform the service that you've asked them to for the price point you've asked them to provide it, then they're not an option anymore. So then the preference will change and it will change your form of thinking in the future for further decision-making. So price differentials, internal changes of value priorities are at a decision-maker level. There's a lot of things that can change. Heck, simply changing the decision makers for some companies will change the way the company decides to make its purchasing of their services and products. Uh, oftentimes, the internal KPIs, internal priorities, would change. Internal valuation system, either CV or CE that we talked about, will change as well. So it's important to note that when we're talking about the preferred, you know, the, re the revealed preferences or stated preferences, that there are too many variables to go about today. But this is this is kind of law of large numbers first kind of thinking. Because if you think about it, when you, when you go after stated preferences and survey either individuals or companies for whatever service or dynamic you want to survey for, those surveys, as you know from probably listening to polls and things in the past, there's always a plus and minus variable. That plus and minus variable is determined by the anomalous behavior of individuals you know, that saying they would rather listen to 80s music than Katy Perry, that kind of thing. Or it can, it can simply be a matter of how young the survey and how less refined it is. So what ends up happening over time is there are surveys that state people's preferences on things. Then there are the actions of those individuals or companies that create the uh, revealed preferences then there's the differential between those two elements. And that's really what I want to key on today. There's a differential between stated preferences and revealed preferences. And that differential can be very bad. Matter of fact, it can be completely uh, in opposition to each other often. But what we can do over time 
by utilizing polls and surveys and looking at both ends of both stated and revealed preferences is to narrow the focus of the surveys and to, to, to unwind out of them the variability and the, the, the sloppiness that you can get when doing that. And it's, so it's a circular kind of scenario. So if you, if you see that you're making a, a particular type of survey and the stated preferences are divergent from the revealed preferences later, the actions later, by a factor of five, then the next survey needs to under, both understand that and put a higher variability plus or minus in the, the final analysis, or it needs to narrow the questions in a way to refine what you're really looking for and get to the core of what people are actually uh, trying to come up with. Because it, Using that second example I had, people don't like charm pricing. They think they're not affected by the charm pricing, but they're, they're revealed preferences may deter show that they actually are subconsciously or consciously recognizing that differential of a penny or a dollar or whatever in buying, at least in part, based on that. And if that is the case, then the next question, the next survey, the next poll will take that into account and modify its questions to assume that. So I hope that makes sense. Now, you know, a lot of this, I'm going to try to finish up with this so that I don't go into kind of a long, drawn-out, detailed um, scenario on this. But the, there was another poll that came out that it struck me that this kind of differential between stated and revealed preferences could be looked at very closely when looking at this. This was a truck driver opinion poll that came out, I don't know, I guess about a week ago, not even a week ago, yet, yet on the 13th of, of September. And with, you know, 2,200 respondents, and this was CDL Life that, that put this together. And I, 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 you have to remember as well that part of the plausibility or, or viability, I should say, of polls like this is the, to the degree of anonymity that is allowed when doing this. If, if part of the poll was put your name and email address down, then you're going to have a whole different type of response than a poll that is completely anonymous. But this, this truck driver poll, fresh on everybody's mind, everybody's mind, of course, is this vaccination mandate for, for uh, companies that are over 100 employees, which I find fascinating and we should talk about it in another podcast because I can see there's a cascade effect, the old slippery slope effect that can occur. And I always, I find it kind of interesting that there was this arbitrary 100 employee rule put into place. Uh, but, but when you dig deep underneath that and you see kind of the the teardrop effect that it can occur, you might see that it's it's a lot more broad than that. But setting that aside for now, this this revealed that 27.4% of the truck drivers on this opinion poll were already vaccinated. And I assume they mean the, the two vaccinations, you know, the, the, unless they had Johnson Johnson, which is one. Now, the very next one, barely underneath that, was I'll get fired before I get vaccinated which is an interesting way that the question must have been posed because getting fired, the, the employee will get some type of compensation from uh, unemployment if that happens that way. And when you go down the list here, you do have a scenario where 10.3% says, I'll quit. Well, so the combination of those two is 36.3% said they'll either get fired or quit, which is paramount, basically the same thing. One is a little more aggressive than the other. 
Uh, 13.5% said the company doesn't have 100 employees, but as I spoke about a moment ago, I think there's going to be an effect to those smaller companies as well. Just as a, a one quick example of that that we'll probably dive into, maybe even on the next next podcast, is that the, the distribution centers that many of the truckers will go into are going to, and some of them already started to, saying everybody that comes into our facility is 100% vaccinated. Well, if that's the case, then they're either going to have to hire only companies with more than 100 employees or the companies with less than 100 employees will have to adhere to the same policies that the larger companies will, which is, I think, part of the goal that they have around this. Now, some of these people said, hey, we're owner-operators already, 10.4% are already owner-operators, so they're not subject to this because they're onesie-twosie, but they fall into the same bracket that I just mentioned ago, mentioned a second ago. If they want to work for in contract with, because that's what owner-operators really are as a form of contractor, uh, which brings up the whole California AB5 and everything revolved around that, the PRO Act, and a lot of other interesting things going on that, that kind of tie themselves to this type of issue. They're either owner-operator or, you know, almost 3% says, I'll become an owner-operator, which is more difficult for an employee to do and has a lot of criteria around it that... Oh, if you want to be an owner-operator, there is definitely dedication that you need to do to that because you're a small business owner. And there's some layers of complexity that sometimes employees, those that are W-2 drivers, don't want to, to deal with. Um, and now 7.1% said they would look for companies that are under 100 employees. But as I mentioned a moment ago, maybe that's not the right thing to do either. Maybe that ties them into the same framework. And then only 2.5% of this you know, whole thing revealed that they would get vaccinated. Now that is not, definitely not what the administration is intending for this. They want to see that 2.5% to 20% because if it, I, right now, statistically, I think the number of the Biden administration is using it's a 27% or maybe it was 25% of the, the nation has not been vaccinated yet. And their goal with a lot of these mandates, a lot of these pushes we can argue rights or wrongs or all that kind of stuff, but that's, I mean, different to that right now. The, the, the whole goal is that that 25% is whittled down to as small as humanly possible. That's the goal of, of all these different things that are going on. 2.5% for the trucking world is not going to meet that goal. Now, some will say that the trucking, the truck drivers are a different breed and they think differently. And I know that for the most part, they're like everybody else in the, in the country. They, they have their goals, they have their dreams, they have their ways of doing business and what they want to, how they want to live outside of work and how they want to live inside of work. And this, in my opinion, if anonymous, which I think it was, it kind of reflects the current reality. Now, this is fresh off the mandate. And, you know, temperature is a little higher right now based on an edict like that that has really never been done before in any way like this to come out. So this, these numbers may change if this poll is done, say, two, three weeks from now, as things kind of settle down and people start evaluating their own internal uh, judgment and priority and what they would and would not do to stay in an industry or move out of an industry, et cetera. But the, the reason I wanted to bring up this and the, the previous things that I talked about as far as stated and revealed preferences is that these things will change. Having a survey like this is going to end up being substantially different than what the effect, the true effect is going to be. And, and I just think it's important to note that, that in, 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 a, in a world, a transportation world, where 
we are certainly very, very short of the commodity, and it is commoditized, it's certainly getting there, that is called the CDL driver. We need more drivers, not less. And I, I find it interesting that I, I read an article just the other day that, that Amazon is trying to, to uh, look at uh, hiring drivers that do test positive for marijuana while at the same time having something go in place like this. So it's, it's, there's a lot of variable, messy things going on in the industry and outside the industry. And as always, my job is to bring those to your attention, hopefully in a way that clears up some things so that we can understand that there's always a difference between the way we state things and the way we actually go about them. And it would be good for us, I think, as an industry and as a whole and as individuals and as companies to bring those two things closer together. Because certainly, I would like to be able to say what I do and do what I say. That's an important element to what goes on. So as always, wonderful to talk to you for a few minutes. Go to ilevellogistics.com. Be part of the crowd. Be part of the community. Be part of the daily. Get sent to you on your email so that you can look at those curated, aggregated information from all over the all over the world in terms of how it may affect you in your personal or your business life. And you know, go, go see us on um, YouTube. Be a subscriber, as I, I talked about a few minutes ago, and go to any one of the the platforms to listen to us: Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, Anchor FM, all those kinds of things. And I, I love what we're seeing out there. I love the responses I'm getting from you guys. And I look forward to the next time that we get together on Jaws Bites. See you soon.